Remember me as a babe. Hot babe. Babe with the power. What power? Power of voodoo. Who you do? What? Remind me as the babe. Quiet! A goblin babe. <laughs> well? <laughs> I told my baby, crying hard as babe could cry. What could I do? Hello and welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast where we dive deep into pop culture from the 80s and 90s to see how it holds up today. I'm Becky and I'm the podcast host, most likely to expertly juggle balls in my hands while crouching beneath David Bowie. I am Seth Pearson, the host most likely to be Prince of the Bog of Eternal Stench, babe. (laughs) (laughs) I am Chris, the podcast host most likely to slap that baby, make him free. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Chrissy, the guest host most likely to be the Goblin Queen. You are most likely to be the Goblin Queen. (laughs) So today, if you haven't figured it out yet, we're going to talk about David Bowie's crotch. (laughs) And pretty much exclusively only David Bowie's crotch. (laughs) Because there's plenty to discuss. When did crotch come out? Was that 1986? (laughs) We're taking a dive back to the 80s. We're diving into David Bowie's crotch. (laughs) Right on into it. We're taking a trip back to the 80s um, to take another look at Labyrinth, as well as The Dark Crystal, which are two Jim Henson movies that don't uh, involve the regular Muppet cast that we all know and love. So no Kermit, uh, no Big Bird. Um, just a lot of weird <laughs> creatures. Wait, did they try out for this movie and get rejected? Yeah, yes. Big Bird was like really wow. close to being Miss the Piggy goblin. Miss Piggy was the original Sarah in Labyrinth. But... I would watch that. I would watch the <laughs> fuck out of that. Seriously watch the shit out of that. Today on our podcast, we have a special guest, one of my best friends of my entire life, Chrissy. Hi. I have known Chrissy since seventh grade. We are currently in our 30s, so that's a very long time. Very long. (laughs) Wow, way to brag. Yeah. (laughs) And we start off the podcast with a question that takes us back to our youth. And this one is not very labyrinth related, but I wanted to talk about best friends. I've known Chrissy since seventh grade, and pretty much immediately since we met, we were very close friends. We actually were only in school together for the first two years, seventh and eighth grade, and then we went to different high schools. And, you know, I went away from Long Island. I flew to LA and went to USC for college. And so we didn't even spend that time together. And yet our friendship has blossomed <laughs> over and over through the years. Did you watch the show Blossom together? <laughs> I don't believe we did. No. No. That was far too innocent for them. They... Yeah. <laughs> we were too busy watching Tarantino flicks. Right. I did show Chrissy train spotting. <laughs> yes. Oh, so you're the one who she sat on and like held her eyes open Clucker for her the first style. time. Yeah. So my question, I guess, is just who is your best friend growing up? Are you still friends with them? Do you know what happened to them if you're not? How do they hold up? (laughs) How do do your friends hold up? As I was saying, obviously, we're still really close friends. Chrissy comes out to visit like at least once a year. I can attest to that because I have seen Chrissy every time she comes out here to visit. I was a bridesmaid for her wedding. She was a bridesmaid for mine, and she was my officiant. And I like that Chrissy is probably the most New York New Yorker I know, but she (laughs) enjoys coming to California. Yes, I do not hate it here. She brings her gloom and doom (laughs) to our sunny shores (laughs) annually. (laughs) 
appropriately timed cackle. Yes. <laughs> I think it's funny that, so Chrissy listens to the podcast, and sometimes you told me that you're like, I was there for that. Yeah. <laughs> like, I remember when she did that. Yeah. And time. I like to guess and fill in, like, which of Becky's friends, because I've met all of them basically <laughs> by now, did which of the things that she's talking about on the podcast, because she's usually kind of vague about who's doing what. That sounds like a Chrissy story. <laughs> Chrissy and I had like a group of friends and we all kind of went to different high schools and all different colleges and we're all still very close. I think like that's strange. It's unique. It's unique. Welcome strange and unique Chrissy to the When We Were Young podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you. I would like to know if you ever witnessed the locker room Disney (laughs) sing-alongs. Nope. No, 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 no. Because that is my favorite. Um, I don't think we had gym together and I would sing in the locker rooms. Were you involved in any way in the Calhoun Bitch Project? No, she didn't go to my high school. But I don't, you could, she could have done it independent study. We did spend some Halloweens together. Well, yeah. Well, that's like my holiday, so. Is it true that you (laughs) ate lunch every day with Jerry Seinfeld? (laughs) You're getting all my stories confused. Oh, fine. All right. Well, Seth, I know that we met Chelsea. I don't know if she was like your true blue best friend back in the day. Well, so I met Chelsea when I was in high school. Okay. Uh, But my first best friend was named Jordan, and I went to first or second grade through seventh grade or so with him, and we would like partner up on like school projects and I would like hang out at his house after school. He introduced me to like Star Trek and like Egyptian mythology and sharks and a lot of the other like things that I nerded out about at that age. And his father was in the military and he got transferred to, I think it was Virginia. So I think it was at the end of seventh grade, they all packed up and moved to Virginia. Mm -hmm. And I basically didn't really talk to him again after that. Why not? Was it because it was, like, harder back then to keep in touch with people? Because, like, now you have Facebook and email and stuff. In some ways, yes. In other ways, I do think that his father was wary about him being best friends with me. Mm. Because his dad would make comments about, like, how I would cross my legs. How old were you at this point? I was, like, 10 or 11. Huh. Um, and Were the red boots? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your Superman boots? We're diving yeah. deep back into all of our horror stories from <laughs> all of the. Oh, yeah. No, and we'll get to my belt over sweatpants period soon enough. <laughs> Looking back, would you say that you acted effeminately when you were even 10? Oh, absolutely. So, well, then your psychosexual development is basically set by 10 mm-hmm. or 11. And that's also when you start kind of exhibiting that to the world, even in all the ways that you're not at all aware of at that time. Mm -hmm. You know, so it was like, it was definitely a thing that I didn't have the vocabulary for, but I definitely always knew that I was different. Mm -hmm. Um, But that didn't matter in terms of my relationship with Jordan. Like, we were just, like, really great friends. You don't know what happened to him? I heard, like, vague things basically throughout high school, because we had some mutual friends that still occasionally kept in touch but he kind of did like move on from most of them so i haven't seen or heard anything from him in a long time are you curious did you facebook yes. stalk? like facebook did you facebook stalk? that's what <laughs> i really asking here i have i don't think he's on facebook i think he he was on live journal a long time ago 
As were we all. <laughs> Life Journal has been mentioned more on this I podcast know. than anywhere else in the last journal? 10 years. I was not. No. I feel what? like you'd have a fun Life Journal, journal name. Nope. <laughs> See, because <that>, <laughs> yeah, there was Dead Journal, and that was for the goth kids. Yeah, no. And I did not. I, I actually was late to the internet world. My family was like, nope, we don't trust that yet. And I was like, okay. <laughs> they were right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, tell them yeah. you're right all along. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have been communicating with you by fax, so I, yeah, I've lived that. <laughs> Chris, do you have, um, what is your best friend story? I don't have one. <laughs> you just didn't have friends. <laughs> no, um, I mean, well, we met Chelsea in the Romy and Michelle episode for Seth's high school best friend. And I was talking in that about my high school best friend, Tiffany, who I also keep in touch with now. So she's kind of my Chrissy, I guess, mm-hmm. or my Chelsea, if you will. Uh, We were in class together in first grade, but we were never really friends, per se, like, until junior high, middle school. Earlier than that, I had different friends every year. Like, in every elementary class, you know, they would switch up the classes, and it it seemed very natural to just switch switch friends, and Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, now I'm with these people, and and just kind of try something new. So the best friends that do come to mind, <laughs> the first one, I think he moved away. It was similar to Seth's story. He moved, it was like probably 40 minutes away. So we kept in touch for a few years and I would go over there occasionally. But after a while, that just naturally like fizzled out because we were like not, you know, in the same classes or anything. And the other best friend who comes to mind, his name was David in fifth grade. And um, he <laughs> had a raptor complex because that was the year that Jurassic Park came out. I'm sorry, a raptor complex? <laughs> Is that like a fetish? What is the complex? It kind of is. It's like, I mean, I believe when we made friends, this wasn't as much of a feature. I'm glad you said make friends. (laughs) You said make and I was hanging on that. Uh, (laughs) No, he he would, um, there was a while where he just decided to communicate as a raptor. (laughs) All of the time. Did he dress and live as a raptor? Not at that time. Was he trans Jurassic? <laughs> I don't know. I I don't know what happened to him. You know that the podcast is about this now. Stop yeah. the podcast. I was gonna save this for the Jurassic Park episode. This podcast but... is now about reestablishing whether or not this man still lives as a dinosaur. I don't know because I think the goal of my life now is to get to the bottom of this. He must have moved away after that year because I don't remember hearing or seeing of him. If he evolved. again, I think he. <laughs> <laughs> Dinosaurs aren't like Pokemon, Chrissy. <laughs> I sh- he is now a bird. <laughs> <laughs> See, they do evolve. I need an update. I need an update okay. next podcast. Yeah. You're going to Facebook stalk this person. Oh he has a very common name, so I'll see if I can find anything. But I don't know. But not doing your research ahead of time, Chris. Yeah, so I have no idea what happened to that. But that was my best friend in fifth grade. And in a way, I'm just grateful that someone made my nerdy love of Jurassic Park look way less nerdy by comparison. Oh like, my god. I am never the nerdiest he person in that you. class. Yeah. He normalized you. That's oh my great. God. That's important. So Chrissy, like, bef- <laughs> is there anyone else? Uh, <laughs> the, are you seeing anyone else? <laughs> <laughs> Were you the only one? Outside of me, obviously we stayed in touch. Is there anyone else from your past? Chris is like, I don't um, know this girl. Let's pretend, <laughs> let's pretend I don't know the answers to probably what you're going to say. You should have no others before me. <laughs> let's pretend like Becky did not coach you on what to say yeah. before this podcast. <laughs> she didn't. In, the, in no. the car ride on the way over, she's like, only oh, me. <laughs> no, I, you know, I have. I, I have a tendency to uh, latch on to people and not let go of them. For, like a raptor? Like a raptor. <laughs> <laughs> 
You don't know this, but I have a really big, gnarly pinky toe. <laughs> the claw on it. And I just, wow. <laughs> I just thought you had a lumpy shoe. <laughs> Clever yeah, <so> girl. Like, <laughs> I have a friend that I've known since I'm five years old, and we're still best friends. I can't get rid of her. She can't get rid of me. There's just no ending that. Ale- Alexis, right? Alexis. Yeah. And then... Alexis and Becky has not me. killed her yet. No. Well, that was just it. Like Every plan is fake. We were all friends. We're all friends. Yeah. And then high school, we had all dispersed. Everybody went to different... Yeah, we all three of us were in different high schools, but yeah. we all stayed very close. So then my first day of ninth grade, I was all alone again. And I was looking for a new tribe. That's when I met like my high school friends. My first day of ninth grade, I was walking through the hallways like, I don't know anyone. And I'm just this little strange goth girl with no home. And I walked by a locker and taped inside the locker was a picture of Jareth as Bowie. And I immediately went, she's going to be my new best friend. Like, that's it. I found her. That's like, this is my, I, we're going to connect. It was and, a symbol of your tribe. Yeah, I, it was. I was like, oh, th- there's Jareth. I'll be fine. And um, <laughs> we all, we all found each other in the art center of our building. And it was like, I'm home. They were all David Bowie fanatics. David and... Bowie's crotch is true north. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. <laughs> it's the North Pole. It is. Mecca. <laughs> and they were, I mean, they were the most important figures of my you know, my high school years, those formative years when I didn't have Becky and Kristen. Yeah, and then she would bring, I mean, we would all meet, you know, after school on weekends, and she brought Amy and Laura and Paul into my life. Mm -hmm. And, like, I brought some people, like, we all brought people from our high school's um, into our life, and then we all became friends with each other. Yeah. This gang of freaks. Yeah, we were we were the freaks and geeks of uh, the goth kids and yeah. They should make a show about that. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so funny to me that like back in the day we were all like made fun of and called freaks or mostly you and Kristen. Yeah, Um, yeah, it was mostly me. Like, but like I got (laughs) was it you calling them freaks? (laughs) (laughs) Becky was the aggressor in that time. (laughs) But like we're still friends like twenty years later. Like fuck all y'all. Yeah. Like, how many of those people that would call us names, how many of them are still friends with their friends 20 years later? Like, we're cool people. Yeah. They are shitty people. Yeah. So. Sometimes, Becky, shitty people do stay friends with each other. I'm oh, just yeah. saying. Yeah. I'm just saying. Like, thinking back to my true. own experience. But, <laughs> but still. The reason I either wanted to bring Chrissy onto this podcast or do this podcast when Chrissy's in town is because when I think of Labyrinth, I think of Chrissy. <laughs> <laughs> That's so sweet. Glowing. Yeah. <laughs> when we think of Jim Henson, we think of, you know, Sesame Street or The Muppets and The Muppet Show. But these two movies don't have any of those characters. And they're very, very different tonally. When I, I want to go over Jim Henson's history a little bit. James Maury Henson. <laughs> Maury as in Maury Povich, named after <laughs> was, Jim Henson. <laughs> he was born September 24th, 1936. Um, he was born in Mississippi. And he was raised in Mississippi and Maryland. He started puppeteering in high school. So pretty early on, he got into the thing that he would be not only famous for, but a legend of. Was someone hanging out behind the bleachers with a puppet? (laughs) I don't know. Wikipedia doesn't say. (laughs) Hey, kid, the first puppet's free. (laughs) He started doing puppeteering while working for WTOP TV in high school. I guess that's a radio station or what is that? Well, why would they have puppets on the radio? I know. It's a very good. It's the most elaborate radio puppet show ever. <laughs> you can hear the you can hear hands. the strings pull, the hands clapping. clapping. Right. What's the sound of one hand clapping? It's KTOP. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, so he worked for our TV station. He was creating puppets for a Saturday morning children's show called The Junior Morning Show. So this is when he was in high school. When he was in college, um, he went to the University of Maryland, College Park, and he um, he majored in home economics. There weren't puppetry degrees back then, Becky. I guess not. While he was um, was a freshman there, and he was asked to create puppets and characters for Sam and Friends. It was a puppet show. So he, I mean, he got started pretty early. Wait, Sam and Friends? Was it about fish? You just read my mind. Sam and that Friends? Was- <laughs> oh, Sam and Friends. I heard Sam. Oh. I heard Sam. Oy. Back in the 1950s, puppets were mostly made out of wood, and they were marionettes. And so marionettes... And they were creepy. Marionettes are... Uh, puppets that are controlled by strings. They are holding strings and you move them that way. Witness Pinocchio. Henson believed that they needed to have more life and sensitivity and show emotions more. So what he did, which was, you know, legendary, was he started making his puppets out of flexible fabric-covered foam rubber so that they could have more expression. So when you're speaking as them, you would actually believe they're saying it versus marionettes that it's just wood moving up and down. There's more of a suspension of disbelief there. Yeah, you don't see the emotion on, like, the faces of a marionette because the face is just wood. Yeah, so, I mean, from there, he got hired to do commercials that puppets were in. Um, We have a couple. (laughs) The LaChoy Dragon is wonderful. Turn them with LaChoy chow mein for a perfect meal in just six minutes. Buy some today! I will! I will! And remember, you heard about it from the LaJoy Dragon! LaJoy Chow Mein, as crisp and good as the takeout kind. Because it's quick cooked in dragon fire. <laughs> quick cooked in dragon Isn't fire. Isn't that great? We just watched uh, LaJoy Dragon. You should Google it because it's hilarious. <laughs> like, actually You're watch it. Don't just listen to it on our podcast. Um, it's really funny. I think it would be funny today. Like It is funny today. It is timelessly funny. Yeah. And which it is came rare, out in the 60s, I think. Right? Early 60s. So he was doing that. He got some gigs on the Jimmy Dean show. Uh, he developed Rolf, the piano playing dog. That was actually the first character that really had a lot of traction that was a recurring character on the Jimmy Dean show. And from there, he collaborated on the beginning of Sesame Street. And obviously, he took off from there. And Sesame Street became, you know, what it is today. It's an familiar. institution. <laughs> Sesame what? <laughs> Sesame Avenue. Oh, I'm sorry, Street. I'm Sesame only Boulevard. <laughs> yeah, I was looking for a boulevard here. Sorry. Um, one thing that I think is really nice, him and his wife had a lot of children. She did decide to, I don't know if retire is the right word, but she was like, you know what, I'm going to quit performing and doing puppetry and raise our children. And he replaced her with a puppet performer called Frank Oz. At home? As like the mother of his yeah. children. <laughs> You're dismissed from your wifely and matronly duties. No. I've replaced at- you with a puppeteer. Named Frank. <laughs> you know what He's I mean. You replaced her with a puppet of Miss Piggy. Our relationship is sexual, thank you for asking. (laughs) They're a close friendship, and they had a very close performing partnership that lasted, you know, three decades. They worked together on Bert and Ernie, Kermit and Miss Piggy, Kermit and Fozzie Bear. When did they do puppetry of the penis? (laughs) God. So basically from there, I mean, Sesame Street happened, the Muppets happened, and I would love to do a Muppets podcast, but I mean... We can't fit that into here. There's too much about the Muppets. There's a lot of Muppets. Yeah, Yeah, I feel like we've got at least a couple episodes of Muppets stuff that we could do. Oh, yeah, seriously. Um, And we're all big Muppets fans here. So, I mean, the Muppet show was huge. Um, And then from there, he didn't want to be just synonymous with G-rated children entertainment. They, They wanted to make something that was a little bit more adult, even though children may 
like it. So there's your um, puppetry of the penis. Yeah, there you go. Yep. They did yep. puppetry of the penis. Um, so that's what <laughs> that's when he decided to do the dark crystal. That'll segue into us talking about the dark crystal and labyrinth. And before we do that, I do want to talk to you guys. Have you seen labyrinth or the dark crystal before? And what did you think back when you first saw it? Chrissy, would you like to start? <laughs> Certainly. Uh, She's never seen them. <laughs> I saw Labyrinth first. I was born in 82, so I think it would have been hard to see The Dark Crystal because it was literally released in theaters on my exact birthday. Oh. So December 17th. Your mother did not give birth to you in the theater while watching if The Dark only, Crystal. If only. I really wish she had because that would... That's I mean, what I thought Chrissy was short for. <laughs> yeah, crystal? Like, crystal. Your full name is The Dark Crystal. Both conceived <laughs> and delivered during screenings of Dark Crystal. <laughs> yeah, so it, that was the thing. So I, I was introduced... I, I've watched Muppets-related films and TV shows my entire life. I, I can't pinpoint the exact first time I saw Labyrinth. Uh, my mother is a huge fan of Jim Henson and his work, so she showed us Sesame Street, she showed us Fraggle Rock, Dark Crystal, Labyrinth, those were all things that were constantly played in my house, specifically for me. My mom was just always like, Chrissy, you'll love this, watch it. And uh, yeah, I can't pinpoint the exact first time I saw either of the films. I know I saw Labyrinth first, and I couldn't, I just couldn't stop watching it. It was uh, it was like an addiction. Like, I What did you like so about much. it? I, all right, well, I love fantasy. The fantasy genre has always been, like, the most important <laughs> um, realm for me, so to speak. <laughs> I've just always wanted to live there. I've always been obsessed with unicorns and fairies and everything of that nature. I, like, um, I think my favorite movie from the, that time period, actually, is Legend by Ridley Scott. And uh, that, that's why my mom segued into all those other films for me. She was like, well, if you like this, you'll, you'll love this. And, uh, yeah, it was just... Everything about it appealed to me. The costumes. I wanted to be Sarah. I wanted to, you know, just live in that world where, you know, fairies are real. And What everything. age were you when the codpiece caught your eye? <laughs> immediately? It, immediately. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> I started to say this earlier to Becky, and she was like, please save this. Um, <laughs> my first sex dream was with David Bowie as Jareth, and I was a child. The like first I, cut is the deepest. Yeah, like I was five years old and having sex dreams with David Bowie as Jareth. What's weird is though, I still remember the dream because I refuse to forget it. That's how much I, I enjoyed it. Um, but I, in the dream, I was uh, an adult. So wow. I had a sex dream as a five-year-old and I look like I do today, which is weird. Do you mean sex dream like sex or do you mean like you were looking he at him and you just thought he was handsome? Bodice. Okay. Like it... <laughs> It was awesome. It was sex. Yeah. Wait, that is what sex is, right? It's bodice ripping. ripping. Other than that, I am a virgin. <laughs> it doesn't count when you rip your own bodice, Seth. Self-ripped bodices don't count either. No. Oh, throwing you roughly in the head and ripping the bodice. You guys, this is throwing me is for sex. a real loop. No, I'm with you. That's what sex is. It's just... <laughs> throwing them roughly on and the And you were an adult in your dream. I was an adult in my dream. Yeah, I was. Okay. It actually, was very nice of you to like make sure that David Bowie was not a statutory rapist in your dream yes, as a five-year-old. a pedophile at that point. Yeah. I was five years old. But yeah, it was like, that was how it like, began. I was like, I don't know what it is I'm feeling, but it's very strong and it's it's important and I will just always carry this with me. And I did. Like, I just, he was the first important that was like my first sexual awakening was david bowie's jareth and that will never stop being that <laughs> like that was like baseline love rock stars wear leather pants you know have crazy hair sing it's done like you're a bad boy and i love it like that was 
That's a beautiful story. That's a beautiful story. And you go to like, so you also go to like labyrinth balls? Is that, let's not forget this detail. (laughs) There are labyrinth balls in California, by the way. I saw that. There's one in August. Really special. (laughs) Actually, it's the biggest one in the country. But um, they stopped doing them, unfortunately. Uh, They do them now in Oregon. They used to do an East Coast Fairy Con, and I attended three years in a row, and then they stopped doing them on the East Coast, and now they only do them in... Was it because you attended three years in a row? (laughs) No. (laughs) It just became financially just not feasible. Like, there wasn't enough attendance, and they moved it from Philadelphia to Baltimore. How many Jareths are there at the Fairy Con? Are they just all (laughs) over the place? (laughs) Surprisingly, no. Like, most people... Why uh, isn't it just called Jareth Con? (laughs) Yeah. Well, surprisingly, no. It would conflict with Jareth. Palooza. What about <laughs> Farathcon, where everyone dresses up like Lewis Farathcon? <laughs> nope. You know, nope. it's mostly about fairies and okay. just the realm of fae and all that kind of stuff. So it's then the hosts of it is Brian and Wendy Froud, who are the creative geniuses behind the Labyrinth and Dark Crystal films. Like they were the collaborators with Jim Henson. So it was more like a celebration of their work. That was a great story, Chrissy. Thank you. Um, <laughs> the first time I saw Labyrinth was actually at a summer camp that I was at with my best friend Jordan. Were you always oh. at a summer camp? I feel like everything <laughs> that you've ever done was at a summer camp. Did you do, was there no pop culture the rest of the year for you? I actually did not go to school. I went to summer camp all year round and took a winter break. <laughs> So I went to a summer camp for gifted and talented kids uh, that took place at a college in Natchitoches, Louisiana, which was where Steel Magnolias was filmed. <laughs> yes. Oh my god. <laughs> and it is known for that and yes, delicious is. meat pies and nothing else. What else uh, is there? At that summer camp, uh, you kind of stayed in a college dorm, and so you got the experience of seeing dorm movie night and all the other kind of associated residential activities. So uh, at one of those activities, I saw Monty Python and the Holy Grail for the first time, which irreversibly changed my life and but also at the summer camp one of our other movie nights was they got a projector together it was usually just a vhs tape and a 27 inch tv but with this projector we had like a nice 80 inch screen to show vhs tapes on <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. i could definitely tell that everyone i was watching it with like including my friend jordan had like loved this movie all their lives but it was entirely new to me so i didn't have all of that kind of original love attached to it but i really I really thought it was intriguing and cool, but it also didn't seem all that dark to me. It was like a fantasy, but it wasn't an especially threatening one at any point. It was more just like a really cool, funky movie with music that I'd never heard. At that time, I was still very much into classical music and Andrew Lloyd Webber, so that would have been one of the first places that I heard David Bowie's music. And of course, that has since come to like define my musical taste to a great deal. But I was so just intrigued by the perfection of Bowie himself and his performance in that movie. Mm -hmm. I was so taken by the makeup that he wore and the glam style and the hair to the skies. One of the things that stuck out so much for me was a point of initial confusion. My RA was just like a huge fan of that movie. That's why we had a movie night to screen it. Mm -hmm. And he had the soundtrack on CD. And on the cover, I swear to God, David Bowie looks like Sigourney Weaver. (laughs) And so I asked him, like, why is Sigourney Weaver on this album cover? Is she in this movie? We'll put up the cover for the soundtrack when we post this episode. But you really need to see it. Because I swear to fuck, David Bowie is a dead ringer for Sigourney Weaver as Zool in Ghostbusters. Oh my god. Um, Like, the eye makeup especially is uncanny. You're right. 
That's it. Yeah, that's oh, it. Oh, you I can um, see how the eye makeup. Yeah. 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 That image was one of the first things in my life that was a moment of gender confusion, but in like the gender non-conformity sense, mm-hmm. where there was someone playing this character that was so clearly outside of all of the lines, but was, still within his codpiece. Still no, well, barely. There are also <laughs> so he's clearly wearing sweatpants in many sequences of this movie, but the sweatpants have a V-line that literally traces <laughs> a straight shot arrow down to his codpiece. So you're more right than you think. <laughs> but this was a moment for me that actually ran exactly parallel because this was the same summer that I kind of started realizing I was attracted to guys. So I think though the movie didn't hit me super hard, there were elements of it that really kind of found me at a time in my life that I was realizing myself. And it was in retrospect, a pretty impactful thing in that way. And I did not see Dark Crystal until like two hours ago. (laughs) Yeah, not once. But it was similarly (laughs) life-changing. Oh, yeah. I've realized I'm actually a Skeksis. (laughs) You're a homosexual? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a Skeksy. You're too Skeksy for that shirt. (laughs) I'm sorry for that sexual harassment. Puns. Puns. (laughs) Any Dark Crystal-related puns, I will laugh out loud, too. So So I believe my introduction to Jim Henson was probably Muppet Babies. Uh, Oh, yes, of course. Yes, it was probably many of ours. I know every word. Yeah, no. We'll move on. (laughs) I watched the opening to Muppet Babies last night because I was curious, and I could remember a disturbing amount of... Oh, it's an earworm. I feel like that song is one of the most perfectly crafted parts of that whole thing. It's it has that weird like fifties doo wop kind of like thing to it, which is very odd. Anyway, and uh, I know I saw Fraggle Rock back then too. That's another favorite of people. I know that I saw Labyrinth as a child at some point, but I think I was a slightly older child because I also know that it didn't scare me and like. Everyone else who has spoken here today, I noticed the cod piece. <laughs> How could you not? But for me, it was more just like, what? What's happening there? <laughs> <laughs> oh, a whole new world is happening. Like, down what's there. going on with his dick? Like <laughs> everything. <laughs> Everything and more. <laughs> I'm going to assume those are still your thoughts. <laughs> yeah, no, they haven't really changed that much. It's more. It was more just confusion. Seth noted all the ways that David Bowie really defied gender norms. I mean, obviously throughout his career, but particularly in that movie. That was maybe the first time, or at least the most striking time, that I'd seen anyone kind of cross those boundaries, and I was just, like, confused. How old were you? I don't know. Probably the older end of elementary school. Because it was was definitely before, like, high school and where I would have been able to process it a little bit more. It was just confusing to me, and it didn't, like, awaken any sort of particular feelings in me. It was just more just like, huh, like, that man looks like a woman. Like, (laughs) what's going on here? I'm so confused. Um... And then I will just say also that, like, my first internship in L.A. was on the Jim Henson lot. So that was sort of my introduction to actually, like, working in the industry. And also, like, I do remember his death because it was in 1990. It was probably the first celebrity death where, like, I actually knew the person's work and was affected. And I was like, I like that man. Mm -hmm. And I'm sad that he's not going to be making any more of these things. I actually remember that, too, just now that you mention it. Yeah. and Big like Bird specifically was like the at Davis his funeral. funeral. Yeah, I remember yeah. Big Bird at his funeral. Oh. 
I cried. I, I remember the day Jim Henson died, too. I, I was completely destroyed. Like, I cried. My mom actually was like, do you want to leave school? Like, mm. do you not want to go in? Because I was so upset. And you were like, uh, no, I want to dedicate my life to finding his killer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, he died yeah. of um, toxic shock syndrome from pneumonia. From pneumonia. That's, that's yeah. awful. Age 53. He's very young. Fucking awful. And I saw Dark Crystal two days ago. <laughs> so... <laughs> Two hours, two days. Can't even. So it's so funny that up until like two weeks ago, preparing for this podcast, I had never seen Labyrinth or The Dark Crystal, which is funny because I'm friends with Chrissy. Yeah. (laughs) And I think maybe we had put... You slipped. I have memories of it being on in the background and all of our friends hanging out, but I wasn't paying attention. I do have a funny story, though. Back in 2007... I was dating this guy pretty early in our relationship. Wasn't even really that. But we were dating maybe like two months. And then it was my birthday. And he had known that I had never seen these movies. And he was a huge Muppets fan. And he was like, I, you have to see these movies. And he bought me them both on DVD. And I was like, okay, let's watch them together. And we actually had like a great day together. We like, you know, went out, did stuff in LA that was all cutesy. Then we went back to his place and we were in his bed and we were watching Labyrinth. I had at least seen, you know, 20, 30 minutes of Labyrinth. You know, everything's great. I'm having a great time. Not really paying attention to the movie so much because I'm like, oh, I'm with the guy, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but I do remember Bowie Crotch. <laughs> that was like the biggest thing that I was like, oh, my God, I haven't. I can't Are you sure I- it was Bowie's? <laughs> Did you compare? Yeah. We're in the middle of the movie and I turn to him and I go, I had a really great day today. I really like you. And he goes, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm like, that's not a good sign. <laughs> and we turn the movie off and we break up. <laughs> Wait, I need more information. Yeah. I feel like David Bowie's codpiece broke up a nascent relationship. No, there was other things going on. More, most, Mostly it being, huh? Uh, I thought we were having a good time. <laughs> we had a great day together. I mean, obviously it was like commitment phobic. And right, or or maybe had other problems, but he just wasn't telling me. But he but, bought you two movies on mm-hmm. DVD because that seems like a commitment of a sort. Of a sort, and spent like the whole day That's with a me. Promise. No, this goes beyond just liking you. This is about how important those movies are. Like he was like, it doesn't matter that I'm going to break up with her. She just needs those. Like that's. I mean, I would do the same. Maybe so. he was planning to break up with you and got them as a as consolation. Like, console you. <laughs> so so I broke up with him. Distract you with or whatever. Bubbles. He broke up with me. Whatever it was, we broke up. I had these movies, and I was like, fuck these movies. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> and so I gave them away. I never watched them. And I, and up until two weeks ago, I had never watched these movies, and I kind of had a vendetta against them, because I was like, I got broken up with in the middle of Labyrinth, so. Watch out, Christy. <laughs> it's fair. It's but fair. it's fine. I put all, anything. Put your feelings aside. Yeah. So anyway, that was my experience with Labyrinth and the Dark Crystal. Very Dark Crystal. Emotional Labyrinth. <laughs> <laughs> Um, The Dark Crystal came out in 1982. It was directed by Jim Henson and Frank Oz. The screenplay was by David O'Dell, who is a staff writer on The Muppet Show. The story was by Jim Henson. It was released December 17th, 1982, the day of Chrissy's birth. Yes. Also in theaters at that time was Tootsie and E.T. Both equally awesome films. Yeah. (laughs) Total classics. Uh, The budget was $15 and the box office domestic was $40 So it was a pretty good hit, especially especially for being in theaters the same time as E.T. and Tootsie. Although I think E.T. came out months before and was just still in theaters. Yeah. It was in theaters for, yeah, it, that was a summer movie, and this is December, yeah. so it was really, really still in theaters. So some background on The Dark Crystal. Jim Henson worked with conceptual designer Brian Froud, who was responsible for the look of everything from the creatures to the landscapes. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> Chrissy is confirming <laughs> yes. everything I'm saying. She is live fact-checking. Everything Becky 
says. Yeah. Um, Jim Henson's plan with the film, he wanted to get back to the darkness of, you know, the Brothers Grimm fairy tales. Um, he felt like children liked being scared and it was like a healthy emotion for them to deal with. Reviews for The Dark Crystal, you know, they were kind of mixed. Positive one, Kevin Thomas from the LA Times said, unlike many screen fantasies, The Dark Crystal casts its spell from its very first frames and proceeds so briskly that it's over before you realize it. You're left with a feeling that you have just awakened from a dream. Um, a not-so-kind review, Vincent Canby from the New York <laughs> Times. A lot of obvious effort has gone into this solemn fairy tale, but all of it has been devoted to the complicated technical problems involved in making a film mostly with animated puppets. The screenplay is without any narrative drive whatsoever. It's without charm as well as interest. He also said Miss Piggy would not be kind to the Dark Crystal. Because <laughs> I had that review, too. I don't think the Dark Crystal would be kind to Miss Piggy. <laughs> it would be a mutually <laughs> bad relationship. The reflector will capture the beams of the dark crystal floating high above. Look into the reflector, Podling. Feel the power of the dark crystal. So let's talk about the dark crystal. What did you guys think now that you're adults or revisiting it as an adult? I'll go first. I absolutely thought it was a joy to watch. It is a... Why are you saying that so much like you did not think so then? No, it is, I think it is a master... It was a fucking joy to watch! <laughs> um, I thought it was, in terms of the artistic craft, a masterpiece. It was, like, the, the puppetry is incredible, and it, it's one thing to, like, talk about aiming to make puppets emotionable, uh, emotional, but they really do just give such personality and character to every character. I think some of the writing is a little bit on the nose, but I think in Dark Crystal especially, the writing is very much in the service of telling the story, and it's not kind of very on-the-nose exposition. And I think that the kind of story it tells is, you know, just very much the typical Joseph Campbell hero's journey, but it's put in such an imaginative package that I was really pleasantly surprised watching it. Well, I love this movie. I mean, it's. I saw a screening of it um, a couple of years ago at uh, in Brooklyn at BAM, and Cheryl Henson did a Q and A afterwards uh, just to talk about the film. And there's just so many parts of it that work together so beautifully, and I, in my opinion, elegantly. It's a visually rich uh, tapestry, and if you love the fantasy realm <laughs> in any capacity you're just it's it's an incredible feat what they accomplished there they they built a world from the ground up and if you know the source material if you know brian froud's work it's incredible how well his drawings translated to this universe it's just everything every detail was so thought out like the undulating plants the breathing creatures every every single part of that film works together to create this very visually lush masterpiece. It's it just... actually reminded me a little bit of Don Bluth, who we covered in episode five of the podcast. There was such an attention to detail and how animated this world was, every aspect of it, even though it isn't like hand animated in the cartoon sense. It's just, there's so much kind of kinetic motion going on that it really does completely pull you into this world. Yeah, it feel it has a visceral like sensation while you're watching. You're like, this seems real. It doesn't seem like yeah. It's maybe their mouths don't move perfectly, or it's something seems a little 
forced, but it, once you let yourself go and watch it, especially when you're a kid, I think it's really easy to just believe it and just get lost in it. And it, that translated, that, that, you know, crossed over for me into adulthood, like watching it at BAM with all these people and talking to Cheryl Henson about it, like, it still delivered. It was still something that we felt good about and, like, all wanted to talk about. And, you know, there's a lot of questions about that movie mm-hmm. that still kind of, you can still have conversations about it as adults that I think it's interesting. Like, my favorite character from Dark Crystal is Agra. I think she's, like, the coolest She's the coolest character. I just think she's... Which one is she for someone who has only recently seen this movie? Imagine I were a dumb person, and what would you describe her as? She's like that witch lady who they go to, who uh, Jen goes to visit, and she's got the big sagging boobs and the red dress and the Mm -hmm. purple horns, and she's got the freaky eyes, and she's got a beard, too. Again, breaking gender norms and all that stuff. Like She's just like this curmudgeonly ancient woman, wise woman, who's seen, was there when the crystal broke in the first place, and like, just again, watch everything develop in those ways and all those characters like they're distinct they're they have personality she was my favorite because she's not good or evil she's just kind of there to deliver the shard (laughs) (laughs) she's just here to deliver the shard (laughs) who's sharded (laughs) i know i hate that that's what it's called i think it's ultimately like labyrinth a fairy tale of sorts and all of them do carry a kind of moral lesson in one way or another and it is a movie about figuring out what it means to fully embody yourself when you don't know like how tough the road ahead is when you don't know what your actual past is and you find like your world breaks apart like what does it mean to kind of be yourself and embrace all those parts of yourself but i also do think there's a very intentional like psychedelic streak both in this and so much throughout Labyrinth. Not in like a literal Alice in Wonderland kind of way, but certainly artistically and then definitely just in terms of the way that people's perceptions get fucked with and like reality is never what it seems. The rug can kind of be pulled out from under you at any point. I had never seen this movie before. I now own it on Blu-ray because that was the easiest way for me to watch it. I got to watch the special features on the Blu-ray, which are pretty intense. And like Seth, it reminded me of Don Bluth and just seeing how much care went into everything. I mean, you kind of obviously know that with puppets is you know, like, oh, like that must have taken so much work. But when you actually see that there were like six puppeteers working on a single character in this movie at a time and how insane you kind of would have to be to like pull this off. Like, I don't understand. I don't really understand anyone who works in animation or with like Like claymation. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I definitely admire those who do. I mean, it really just feels, I think, more than anything else, like Jim Henson's imagination run amok, you know, where he really gets to do, I think, everything that he wants to do in this. This was advertised as the first movie to not have any humans on screen. Obviously, the first non-animated movie. And I think that's kind of like his ideal mode. Like, obviously, Labyrinth has human actors. And I think it becomes a very different movie for that. And this one, I feel like, is more just pure imagination. Everything is invented. I would say that I admire the movie more than I actually enjoy watching it. It's very, very earnest which I think can be a nice thing, but it's just, it's a little bit jarring to see something so earnest. Hold on, let's let's pause on that briefly because okay. that that's interesting to me. Because let's be honest, we are a completely irony drenched culture. Yeah, 
and anything that would get made that's anything remotely like this. I mean, I even put it to the realm of like comparing it to CG animated movies now. Like, yeah. There's so much irony in those mm-hmm. and so many winky naughty moments designed to point out to you that this is not a world that you're being drawn into, that it wants you to fully inhabit. Do you think there's an aspect of how you took it in that's related to that? Like the, that the earnestness itself struck you that way? Yeah, I definitely think that we have been conditioned and I think kids have been conditioned to not really see storytelling earnestly anymore. I think even when you watch like the kinds of cartoons that are just on TV for kids that like adults don't really watch, they're very sarcastic and very wisecracky. They're also comedies and yeah. this is not a comedy. No. But yeah, there's not what I mean there's f- almost nothing funny that I can remember in this movie or that uh, that is at least like and there's certainly no jokes. Joke. There are no, no, there are no jokes. jokes. No, there's no jokes. But yeah. really, I think um, Kira's pet fizz gig is like the one. Yes. Oh yeah. Oh absolutely. Refreshing. Yeah, they're a funny things. But that's yeah. pretty yeah. small. I'm yeah. just uh, most almost entirely all children's movies today, or movies that are family friendly, are comedies True. with serious moments. Yeah. But this is a serious but like movie. Packed, yeah. And movies like this or anything, again, there's nothing that would be made like this exactly, but it would be packed to the rafters with jokes. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there would be jokes that didn't necessarily advance the story or tell story or reveal character or anything. Yeah, I mean, if it was a good movie, they would. And if right. it wasn't, yeah, they <laughs> would. Um, I, I mean, I think you can compare this maybe to Pixar a little bit and how imaginative and maybe. like well and like designed the Absolutely. world is. And it... I would say comparably, like, as much thought went into this as goes into those Pixar movies. And I think those are generally very well-written movies, and they they don't Mm -hmm. pander, and their humor is Mm story-driven. So I think that would be the good model for something like this if it were made now. And then there's plenty of non-Pixar... Ah, Chris, the optimist. ...CG movies that are maybe (laughs) slightly less uh, well-crafted. I often wonder if John Lasseter... um, is influenced by Jim Henson at all. I know he's influenced by Miyazaki, mm-hmm. but uh, there is a complete feel to uh, Pixar films that I do think Jim Henson was the only other. Like, that's why I think it's interesting. Like, I had Jim Henson my whole life. That was my childhood. And I don't think there was, this, like, a break in the entertainment world, in my opinion, where, ch- like, children's films didn't have that same love and care. And then John Lasseter came along and, like, kind of brought it back to, you know, the U.S. Absolutely, yeah. There's very, it's very rare these days to see a pure vision um, executed, especially in, like, a family film. Yeah. Um, And I think Pixar is maybe the only people who are doing that in America right now. exactly. And, yeah, we had Don Bluth and we had Jim Henson, and I think those are... Those are the big ones. Yeah, those are... And I think they were bridges, too. Again, like Chris was saying, like, the the chance to make better story is not just, you know, better special effects or more dazzling animation. Yeah, and, like, neither Don Bluth nor um, Jim Henson was afraid to go dark, which I think is interesting. It's like, these are both kind of surprisingly dark in ways or just have elements that, that we're surprised that would be in a children's movie. Um, oh, yeah. Because... I mean, this this culminates in the female of the two hero gelflings, which really should just be called elflings because they're small elves. Mm-hmm. It culminates in the third act with one of the one of them getting stabbed to death. Yeah. By the kind of bad guys of the movie. And it's a moment of sacrifice that ends up being part of the pivotal thing that saves the day. Um, but it, I 
kind of was really not expecting it. I mean, it is in retrospect, of course, that is always part of the, again, like the, the prototypical hero's journey. It involves sacrifice, whether it's of the hero uh, or their companion. Yeah, for me, I think that the Gelflings are maybe like the weak link for why I don't connect to this movie too much is because it, it makes sense for everyone else to be puppets. But for people that we identify with, I still feel like I fall short of being able to really get super invested in them as characters because they still have some of the limitations of puppets. I see them too much as puppets, whereas I feel like if they had maybe been played by human actors like in Labyrinth, I might have had an easier time just kind of getting wrapped up into the world. The, the expressions yeah. that they're able right. to have is it, it's a little bit flat for me, yeah. just their the voice work and the it, it just doesn't get me as far as I need to go to like really feel like there are high stakes in this because I'm always at a bit of a remove knowing that everything mm. is puppets. Yeah, I, I agree with Chris. That was really hard for me to connect with anybody in the movie, really, because I felt like it was a mistake to not have at least those characters be human. I feel like I really wanted to like this more than I did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to be kind. It's, it's a hard one to like. Though. Yeah, like, I... <laughs> I, this movie's not for me. And I like the Muppets, and I like Jim Henson. That's why it's a little strange that I didn't watch this growing up, but maybe not so much, because it's so tonally different, and it was very jarring. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm a Muppet show person, I'm the Muppets, Muppet babies, like, I love... Jim Henson and the Muppets. Becky is a Muppet. I'm a Muppet. I own a Muppet. I literally like bought my husband a Muppet, so it's ours now because we're married. (laughs) It takes at least two people to operate her. Yes. Um, (laughs) So I do love the Muppets, but like it was just very jarring. It was very jarring watching these movies, more so the Dark Crystal, that the tone is just so different. I do think it is distancing that the two leads are are puppets and not people. I think there is a degree to which, because I didn't really emotionally connect with the story at all. Like, visually, I think it was stunning, but I didn't connect to the story. Yeah. The only other thing, I mean, I'm very impressed by Jim Henson, even story-wise. I, you know, wasn't really into this movie the movie's story, but I kind of did feel like the characters were kind of ugly to look at. Um, even though they were impressively made, I think that they're, I like, I didn't want to look at them. Ew. <laughs> like, they were, like, gross. I mean, is that, do you not, I don't know, like, I just, like, what looking at the movie, gross? like, those vulture characters well, were just. are supposed to be gross. I know, like, but, like, I thought all of the evil. characters were kind of gross looking, <laughs> except for Fizz, Fizz, Fizz gig? Fizzgig was yeah. cute. But all really? even like the main two ge- oh, Gelfins, I thought Gelflings. were kind of like ugly. <laughs> like I just really? thought, oh, are you kidding? I like, think Kira I was so beautiful. I wa- there was a time where I wanted to name my daughter Kira. Just, <laughs> like, if I had a kid, I was like, her name's gonna be Kira. Maybe, th- maybe with them, it's a little bit. What's that word? Um, where something uncanny valley. Uncanny valley yeah. with them. Do you know what that no. phrase is? It's when something looks. They try to make it look more human, and then it looks like something is very strange. Like if you just have a box with a smiley face on it, you look at it and you're like, oh, it's like anthropomorphized. Yeah, anthropomorphized. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can't pronounce any of these words. (laughs) But if they try to make it more and more and more human, you know what the difference is between what's human and what's not, that it just looks strange. And that gap becomes more and more disturbing the closer it gets to something that could look real. Fair. That's how I felt about the Ninja Turtles. Yeah. Yeah. Or like like people have that problem with the Polar Express. Or Beowulf. Yeah, the old Robert Zemeckis movies. That's when that kind of came out as a film term in terms of CGI. Yeah. So I kind of had that response with those two characters, which is why I wish that they were human. And I just felt like all the other characters were just ugly, not badly designed, 
they're like obviously like works of art, but like all of them are just very like dark and kind of dreary looking. Yeah. Oh, see, but I loved that. I felt that, that was I loved intentional. That. Yeah, I, I thought that was intentional and I liked it. I mean, I just didn't think that either the writing or the storytelling through dialogue or through their action really sold it as a realistic thing. Again, I did take it in as like an interesting performance of this thing, but I didn't take it in as like a really compelling story with characters who I emotionally was like involved in the stakes of. Yeah, I agree. I want to get more into story when we talk about Labyrinth mostly, but I will agree that the story very much reminds of old fairy tales, but I feel like it's kind of missing the core. Most fairy tales are basically some kind of moral tale where, Mm -hmm. you know, it's instructive to do this or don't do this. And it's a metaphor for something. And this, I don't really feel it was that much of a metaphor for anything or that it had that real history. It felt like someone kind of like doing a fairy tale, but without what makes them so important. So it's like, it has the, we need to put the shard back in the crystal by this time or this will happen. But there's no sense of like. conjunction. Yeah. It's like, (laughs) but why? You're like, Like, what's the shard in my life? Yeah. (laughs) Like, if I don't do this by this time, what is going to happen in my life? Yeah. It's very arbitrary. It's like, why must they do this right now? And I know that you're not necessarily supposed to ask those questions of, and you could probably go into a lot of like Grimm's fairy tales and also ask like really obvious questions. Why didn't the bears lock their doors before <laughs> Goldilocks came Well, but that's yeah. the thing is the plot in fairy tales that stand the test of time, those plots are about something ultimately within the character that needs to be resolved. Mm-hmm. And with this, it's really just more r- about remembering. And that's not really an active thing that takes place in the present that changes the essence of that character, the essence of that uh, character. Yeah. Again, it's just not as compelling because the, the plot is just the, a thing that happens to these characters rather than these characters happening to this plot. You know, I actually was thinking it too again about the lack of humor as you were saying. There's actually a lot of super dark humor that I actually really responded to as a kid watching this movie. Like they showed um like I remember the scene with Kira like petting the Nandri who had the baby Nandris like those like those little whale-like things and like you're like, "Oh, that's so cute." And then it immediately cuts to the next scene in the Skeksis lair. And they have fresh roasted Nandri and they're about to eat it. And I actually remember as a kid laughing like that's so <laughs> sick, like just being like, that's really messed up. Like and it, to me, I was like, that's the the Skeksis were kind of like funny. Like they were so insane. Like the one that was like a foppish. Was he called Carrington? What was he called? <laughs> I forget what they were. In. There were so many of them. Kensington they, Carrington. Yeah. And there was like the one that was like. And he was just like a feminine, the very Frank Oz noised one. Yeah, and there was like the big, fat, disgusting one, and just like the way they they were like all the deadly sins to me. Yeah, they were based on the deadly sins. Apparently, that's really interesting. Yeah, and like I just remember laughing at them and thinking like they're disgusting, but I like found them funny. So let's move on to Labyrinth. Yes, Uh, the meat (laughs) of our. David Bowie's penis. (laughs) (laughs) The penis of our codpiece. David Bowie's area. No, I mustn't. I mustn't say. I wish. I wish. This is going to say it. Say what? You shut up. Listen, she's going to say the word. I can bear it no longer. Goblin King. Not eat. Well, children, that rubbish. It doesn't even start with I wish. 
The Labyrinth was directed by Jim Henson. This was his final feature film as a director. The screenplay was by Terry Jones, who you might know as a member of Monty Python. Yay! The story was by Dennis Lee. George Lucas and his Lucasfilm production company co-produced it. It was released June 27th, 1986. Also in theaters, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Top Gun, and The Karate Kid Part 2. Yeah. The budget was $25 million, so they got about $10 more million than they got last time for The Dark Crystal. The box office was just under $13 million, so it did not do well at the box office. Mm. It stars Jennifer Connelly as Sarah. She was just 14 years old during filming. Um, and David Bowie as Jareth the Goblin King. Who is also 14 years old. <laughs> Jareth the so, Goblin uh, King. I did want to just let you know that Terry Jones actually was the only one who got credit for the screenplay, but mm-hmm. it's actually not. It, he it, he like, does there's say. There's a bunch of rewrites for yeah, it. Yeah. He does like, say that he um, he admits that the fr- finished version of the film is very different than what he did. And yeah. it was more of a collaboration between that script and Henson and the producers on set. Yes. And Elaine May also did rewrites of it. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, other other music superstars that were in contention for playing Jareth were Michael Jackson, yeah. Sting, Prince, and Mick Jagger. Yeah. Jim Henson's kids convinced him to cast David Bowie. Uh, he was at the height of his popularity with the release of his Let's Dance album. Um, and uh, a few other actresses of note who were in contention to play Sarah were Jane Krakowski of 30 Rock <laughs> and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt fame. It's amazing. And Ali Sheedy. <laughs> Whoa! Also, Sarah Jessica Parker. Yes. Laura Dern. Marissa Tomei. Those were the two, though, that were like, you know, right up there in the running. Yeah. But all those. Yeah, those. Helena Bonham Carter. Mira Sorvino. Yasmin Bleeth. (laughs) Yasmin Bleeth. Wild card. And Jennifer Connelly won Jim Henson over. She punched every one of those women. (laughs) Um, The movie is loosely based on a Maurice Sendak book. He's, uh, you know, Where the Wild Things Are. Um, it's the book is called Outside Over There. The story follows young Ida, who must enter the fantastical world described as Outside Over There, to find her baby sister, who's been spirited away by some goblins. Mm-hmm. So pretty close. Very <laughs> loosely yeah. based, as in ripped off from. Yeah, because Sandek was really furious, yeah. actually. But um, yeah, his lawyers intervened at one point during the movie because I think they were going to refer to some of the characters as wild things, and they were like, "No, no." Yeah, yeah exactly. that's a little. Um, but yeah, he definitely complained about that after. Yes the film's release well it's since become a cult movie i mean there's fairy balls in the text of the movie as well as outside of it um you know people love jim henson and people love bowie so it brings both of those two groups together and people love balls <laughs> um, it did have mixed reviews at the time um and i would say it still does yes <laughs> Michael Wilmington of the Chicago Tribune said, uh, Labyrinth is a real masterpiece of puppetry and special effects, an absolutely gorgeous children's fantasy movie. Meanwhile, Roger Ebert at the time said, great energy and creativity went into the construction, production, and direction of this movie, but it doesn't have a story that does justice to the production. So not as big a fan. So let's just launch into it. What did you think of Labyrinth? Besides being my sexual awakening. <laughs> so, okay, so obviously, old. Chrissy, obviously, no. Chrissy, you love this movie. Yes. What about it as an adult do you get out of it? Like, do you just find more layers? Like, do, what do you get out of it that is maybe different than when you were a child? Well, again, interestingly enough, I went to a screening of this movie at the Rubin Museum in New York City. Uh, they were doing a labyrinth-themed show, and they decided to screen, do a screening of Labyrinth, and Cheryl Henson again was there. And I learned a lot 
from that screening and what she had to say about it when she introduced the film. Um, in particular was that she was about to go off to college and uh, apparently Jim Henson had a really hard time watching his daughter grow up and become a woman. And this was a movie that he felt had to be made to kind of warn her <laughs> about like the, you know, what happens to girls when they go off to college and be careful of the bad boys and, you know, watch out for the codpiece. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, that's, I think that it was an intentional decision. Yes, yes. The codpiece was intentional, believe it or not. Let's talk about this. It's not even a codpiece. It's just pants. Yeah. That well, are, no, pants. there's a name for it. So on Moose set, knuckle. on set, <laughs> They were referred to as the Perv Pants. And that the is what, pants, that is what Brian Froud, Wendy Froud, David Bowie, they were all like, oh, I gotta put on my Perv Pants. Like, it was so it was deliberate. Yeah, it was deliberate. It was deliberate, yeah. yeah like, because how could it not be deliberate? Pants. Exactly. Like, and I remember when I heard that from Brian Froud, I started laughing. He was like, oh yeah, no, everybody on set was like, those are Perv Pants. Are those pants. your Perv Pants? Or are you just happy to see me? Exactly. It was the whole, that was the point. You were supposed to feel very aware has it got to be one or the other? <laughs> I feel like but, I literally laughed out loud when I first saw his crotch. Yeah. Oh, I <laughs> did too. I how, absolutely how did. How is that in a movie? How did it pass the people that aren't creatively involved, like the people paying for the movie? How were they like, you can't put that crotch in this children's movie? Yeah. Well, that was the thing. So it was supposed to be geared towards teenage girls and, you know, most likely teenage gay men uh, who watch this film like, most okay, this is, yeah, this is for me. This is a, you know, this is this is a tale that I think little kids can watch it, but then, like, the adults watching it, too, got, like, we're like, this has some... Oh, I watched all the tales. Yeah, like... <laughs> no, like, there's a lot of, for me, a lot of implications about what it means to, like, she, like, even in the beginning, um, Sarah's stepmother is like, I hope you have a date. Like, get out there. Like... Stop being a child and play, you know, and reenact plays in the park. Like, you should be going on dates at your age. And it was kind of like that severe, you know, coming of age, like, becoming a woman and how awkward that that time period is for a girl. And I think that was when Cheryl Henson was talking about it. She was like, my dad had a really hard time watching me become a woman. Like, it actually, like, broke his heart in a lot of ways. And, like that you know there are beasts out there there are things to be scared of and like don't lose sight of who you are and protect yourself and like watching it now as an adult woman having gone through all those experiences i actually remember thinking to myself like yeah you know what there were a couple of parts in that movie like as a teenager where i was like i don't like when jareth is like let me you know let me rule you and i will be your slave and i remember thinking like that makes zero sense buddy and it yeah. actually made me <laughs> a very confident woman and like to like like I had red flags going up constantly when I felt like people were trying to manipulate me and I think that movie actually like was it did exactly what Jim Henson wanted it to do for at least for in my life where like I actually became a stronger minded woman because that movie like taught me to like you know question the way men handle me or address me or try to deal with me like they're going to try to take advantage of you especially ones who like address you with authority yeah yeah, I find that really interesting that he responded to that by having the story be about a girl who doesn't want to grow up, but her stepmother and the kind of everything else does want to. Because I feel like more often we see the story of like, I want to go on dates. And the parents are like, no, no, you're too young. So it's interesting. And if if that was Jim Hansen's intent, that he didn't want his daughter to grow up, it's weird that he, in a way, made the character the one who doesn't want to grow up and the kind of the rest of the world trying to make her grow up. It's a more interesting choice, I think. Yeah. Well, let me rephrase it too. It was he 
he was having like uh, like Gerald explained it like he was glad I was evolving, but it also was like oh like there's just so much yeah. So yeah. it was yeah like he, he obviously wanted her to grow up, but he was right. also like oh this hurts my heart <laughs> and mm-hmm. please be careful. <laughs> yeah, but maybe you know, he, it, big... it almost feels like he was wrestling more with his own feelings about yeah growing right. and like putting himself into the character rather than like necessarily yeah. seeing it as like a this is my daughter and like the story that I'm trying to tell yeah. Um, this movie begins with a computer-generated owl that is probably the worst thing in the movie. <laughs> you know, though, to, I thought it was to a its cre- Well, to its credit, oh. <laughs> to its credit, it was actually the first piece of CG it was ever in a film. I know, but so. it doesn't mean that it holds up yeah. at all. <laughs> it doesn't, but it's still kind of neat that that was like a. <laughs> yeah. It gets a small Take, trophy. Yeah, yeah. tiny a little trophy. Small but owl it's, shaped it's trophy. funny because <laughs> I mean that is the first thing you see, and it is terrible. Yeah. I mean looking at it from 2017. Um, But the rest of the effects in the movie are insanely impressive and hold up incredibly well because they're all on set practical effects. I think for the most part, right? Yeah, so there is, one of the notes I wrote down is there's a fire dance scene in a musical sequence. No, the green screening in that. Terribly done green screen. That's probably the weakest sequence. And it's weird. It's just weird given the budget of this movie that they didn't just film that on a set. It did totally take me out of the movie. I I mean, because of the way they wanted them to move, they needed a green screen. They needed needed their head to come off and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But other than that, other than that, I was very impressed with the inventiveness and just the way everything looked. It looked beautiful just how everything moves and it's all puppets and they're they're really moving so that's why it looks great i have to agree i think it's still very beautiful so um and i thought it was interesting like watching the two of them back to back and seeing dark crystal for the first time i definitely think both of these movies are kind of structured like video games um also much like movies like the polar express that came along later were um and a lot of kind of fantasy movies often are in that um it's about characters going through a series of different obstacles and there Mm -hmm. literally are like different levels and stages and then there's kind of the final boss who may appear multiple points throughout but is kind of the last line that you have to get through to win Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it also feels like the story is very video game like in that, like in its kind of don't think about it too hard, just play it's, the game. It's simple. I have yeah. to do this thing, and I have to get through these different episodes. Exactly. Well, and a lot of times it's not even just I have to do this thing. It's that I just have to say the right words or ask the right question. Oh yeah, like when she's trying to get through that door, and she has to ask, or what is it like? The yeah. truth one and the lie. One of us always lies, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and they're door knockers. So I, I wanted to point out, because I really did enjoy um, the kind of side characters and bit characters yeah. who have moments in this. So I would be surprised if those so ones were not who, written by Terry Jones. Who that was your favorite? Mon- Monty Python. I have my favorite side character. Is it the um, worm? So I loved, no. <laughs> I loved the knockers. Those were the the door knockers, one of which always lies and one of which always tells the truth, but neither of which will say which is which. Mm-hmm. Um I think my favorite were the false alarms, which were the false alarms were were faces of rock (laughs) that are embedded in the walls of the labyrinth that constantly say like these doom and gloom things. It's like you're going to die out there. Yeah, please, I haven't said it in such a long time. The false alarms are just really unique, great, very Hensonian characters, and they don't have to have that long a presence in the movie to just really make an 
impression. Because there are other moments like this, but there's a moment in the movie where our main characters kind of call the, the rocks on their shit, and on the fact that they don't know that doom and gloom is the only thing. And they just say, well, but there are so few people who come through here. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's basically saying that they're lonely, and they just this is their one role, and they want to do their role, please. Um, and it just, I was so tickled by that. There's a lot of that, just of characters that are like have one purpose, and that's what they want to do. Like the Fox character. I'm, I Sir Didymus. Yes. yes. Sorry, I'm not as familiar with the name. <laughs> Sir Ambrosius. Ambrosius. <laughs> we have very to talk stuck about on his task of like, I can't let anyone pass. And then, but she just asks Without the logical question. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. what do you mean? And and he's like, oh, well, I, I just need to give permission. And, and she's like, oh, can I have permission? He's like, oh, I never thought of that. <laughs> yes. And like these these very people who are just very narrow minded. Well, I guess they're not people. Puppets that are very narrow minded. The the protagonist is the only one who's able to like kind of think outside the box in this world. I really liked the ostrich bird hat thing. Yes, it's so stimulating. It's so stimulating being your hat. (laughs) (laughs) I love the ostrich bird hat. Yeah, that was my favorite like character. Like it just was was a moment of like sketch comedy. In yeah. this movie. Yeah. Well, actually, that's a, a thing. The, the humor in this movie actually, to me, always felt very British. And I remember oh, watching it's it. Monty Python. It's yeah, so it's Monty Python. And it, just everything about it. Like, I, that was how I knew I had, like, offbeat and humor, too. Like, also, <laughs> like, I need to point out um, Sir Didymus is this character who's a fox and he has a dog named Ambrosius! Yeah. <laughs> and he, the dog has a saddle it's my, and he rides the doggy in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and every time it happens, the, the Muppet is just flopping back and forth <laughs> on the back of this dog. And it's one of the funniest fucking things I've ever seen in my life. Yes. It is Seth's new life goal. Yes. <laughs> no, seriously. Really Riding is. that dog. I, I couldn't tell you who my favorite one like that, well and i don't consider serdidimus ambrosius ludo hoggle <laughs> you know or hoggle i can't even now i don't know what his real name is and sarah like i they're like to me the core group so all those other out like outside characters like i couldn't pick if you asked me to pick a favorite amongst her like team i couldn't like the minute I saw Ludo, my whole heart melted, and I just wanted to like be in his furry oh, yeah. arms. I just think Smell. he's so yeah. Burn. <laughs> That's what. I, and then I, I felt met, bad for him when you first encounter him. him. He's being beaten. Did you yeah. hear them call him a hippie? That was really funny. What? If you rewatch the film, like one of those those little evil guys that are attacking him, and then was like very hippie, and I was like, oh my god, is that like Jim Henson was just like calling he that does, out? Like, he does mm-hmm. sneak. He, he like Henson would always sneak jokes into movies. And I mean, this especially comes out a lot more in the Muppet movies later yeah. on. But he would sneak things in that were not kid appropriate, yeah. or at least no there way. were things that no kids would know about, mm-hmm. exactly. just for adults who were happen to see the movie. Well, that's what makes those movies so good because you can watch oh, yeah. it as an adult and get something out of it, and you can your kid can watch it and they'll get something totally different out of it. Like my mom watched those movies with me, and she would laugh and I'd be like, "What's funny?" She was like, "No, don't worry about it." Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like that's yeah. a good movie. <laughs> that... um, the part that really stands out to me the most besides David Bowie's crotch or like anything with outside of Bowie in this movie, which I think Bowie is the reason to watch besides the inventiveness of the world. Yeah. Um, the pit with the hands was so creepy. Helping, Helping hands. hands. Yeah. yeah. And the way that they talked and moved and reformed. And I just, I've never so seen clever. that Ingenious. in a movie. And that's clever. the, that's the section of the movie that I was blown away by. Yeah. That, you know, that might be my favorite thing that happens to her like as far as all the different characters that's not within the core group I think the helping hands were 
I think that's also the kind of the darkest yeah. part of the movie, yeah. just in terms of the metaphor. If if we're looking at this as a metaphor for kind of puberty or in like, you know, encroaching adulthood, mm-hmm. like the fact that there are these like dark hands grabbing all over her is, I mean, you can, it's pretty obvious what that yeah. represents. Well, but yeah. the thing yeah. is, in the context of the movie, they were trying to help her. She just didn't know the direction to go. And they would just do what they were told. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because I've mentioned in a previous episode of the show that one of my first like super scary memories was an HBO yes. ad <laughs> um, about like a, a, a hand, a gnarly, scary, like soil ridden hand coming out of the ground and like grabbing me. And I also think that I must have seen that sequence at some point around the house or on TV or something. Cause it, it definitely rewatching it now, it was more familiar than just, you know, having seen it that one time when I was an older kid. Yeah. I saw this uh, about a year ago, probably in the cemetery, uh, since we were talking about that before in a, um, Screening with legend and the never ending story. So it was probably like, oh, wow. Oh my God. Just that's fantasy. Wonderful. Yeah, that's yeah, like my well, dream to be in the cemetery watching all my not favorite Not to interrupt movies. your story, but I think it's really interesting around this time of the 80s, 90s that all these dark fantasy movies for children came out. Mm-hmm. Like those three, and then Willow, um, The Secret of Nim. <laughs> it's <a good> time. <laughs> like a lot. Chrissy is overjoyed. Return right to Oz. <laughs> just thinking yeah. about it. Yeah, it was just, I wonder what happened there <laughs> like what movie was like was such a hit that they're like let's roll them out some dark dark <laughs> movies for kids yeah well i don't think these were for kids though like i think that's um a common misconception like george lucas and all like they were big tolkien fans like they were all probably just kind of like gearing up to make adult fantasy films like a thing uh well, and there's also, like, again, when I can talk about, like, juvenile psychedelia, there yeah. is definitely a scene, a, se- a whole sequence in this movie that starts with Sarah taking a bite from a peach, and she has a trip. Scene. That She's is tripping my on that scene. peach. And yeah, it, that is like, my favorite scene peach. in the whole movie. I mean, and she has one <laughs> bite. It's very symbolic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I right. can eat a peach. I all actually day. was just maybe one, the worm was supposed bite. to be like a tequila worm too. Like I always thought that oh, might be like yeah. a, and like that dance that the masquerade ball scene in that movie. Um it again is, it's again just visually astonishing. My heart hurts thinking about it. like that was actually for the longest time, like from when I was a little girl till about uh, until my wedding day, I always thought that was what my wedding was going to be. Was a masquerade. Was that ball. your wedding dress with the big well, hair? I wanted you. I mean I could do that in a heartbeat. Like I have the hair for it. And I just was like, I want Venetian mask to be given out as my wedding favor and I want everybody to be on the dance floor with me and we're going to do As the World Falls Down and it's going to be amazing and then I met my husband and he was like we're not doing any of that and I was like oh oh that's right weddings aren't just about me <laughs> one of your birthday parties and that's what me. I said I'm like, my 40th birthday party is going to be a labyrinth masquerade ball and like I'll it's be happening <laughs> like, oh that sounds tremendous yeah. plan your masks now <laughs> yeah like one of my best friends that was her wedding song was as the world falls down and i actually it was a halloween wedding so i actually bought masks to wear and like did it for her and yeah it was very special <laughs> it's very what, important what were you going to say at the- um so i saw this in the cemetery with those other movies and i can't remember which order i saw them in but it was a lot of that's a lot of fantasy to take in <laughs> yeah. all at once and so the last time i had seen this movie i was kind of bored or just a little bit over stimulated with this fantasy because um, it was an all-night screening. And so I was actually expecting to not like this movie 
as much as I did. And I, it was actually more entertaining than I remembered it being, because I remembered it feeling a little bit more like I actually reacted to The Dark Crystal as being very earnest. But I think there are two things that separate this movie a lot from The Dark Crystal. And one is that it has actual human characters that you can see emoting and kind of identify with. And then the other is the humor, which definitely is in this movie and definitely much more so than The Dark Crystal. And I wonder in a way if that's like the difference between 1982 and 1986 and like maybe they just kind of realized that family movies were heading that way and that they wanted more comedy because as we discussed like the Disney movies that came out slightly later like Aladdin and The Lion King definitely went in that kind of direction and then every movie kind of went every family movie went in that humorous direction so I don't know if that was a conscious choice on their part that you know maybe they thought that The Dark Crystal didn't work because it didn't have humor or if that was just sort of a cultural thing. I know they thought it was too dark and they did want to go lighter. It's funny because The Dark Crystal was more of a box office hit than Labyrinth was. But I guess they didn't know that at the time. And The Dark Crystal is actually much lighter than Labyrinth in terms of its themes. It just feels heavier because the tone is heavier. But, like, there's nothing actually, like, super disturbing about The Dark Crystal. Whereas if you, like, really look into this movie, it's about a androgynous man coming after your teenage girl. And, and, her, and her baby brother. Yeah. I think that masquerade scene is very... It feels very tonally different from the rest of the movie. It feels very adult and very kind of disturbing. And you can tell that she's like out of her element in that. And I think it mimics the feeling of being kind of in a place where things are too adult. And you sense that fear from her. And Absolutely. the fact that it has all these like eyes wide shutty kind of yeah. masks is, is very creepy, actually. Yeah. Y'all ha- no one's brought it up yet. And actually a theme that really came across to me so heavy in this movie wasn't even something I could find any writing about online. But I think this movie is also a Christian metaphor. Hmm. Um, just let me give you... Uh, ma- I'm going to read from you the Bible now. Yeah. You have my attention. <laughs> um, from <laughs> Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 8. Part of the Sermon on the Mount, the King James Version of it reads, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. These two verses are translated a bunch of different ways, but they're one of the kind of fundamental things in the Christian faith, and especially in Protestant faith, that relate to prayer and the importance of prayer. And in this case, like prayer as a way of asking the people who can help, whether that's God or people who come among you as friends. So this movie starts with the main character, Sarah, committing a sin. She gives a literal prayer to these goblins to take her pain-in-the-ass baby brother away, and she's committing all kinds of other sins in that she's like taking her life for granted. She's taking for granted her little brother. She's taking her like total, her life of total spoiled comfort very much for granted as well. So even with the ways that her parents are kind of unloving or not nice to her, she's also kind of taken for granted the things that aren't wrong in her life. But she commits this sin of asking that her brother be taken from her. So through the course of this movie, she has to ask for permission. She has to learn to not 
knock on the right door. And the payoff of all of that near the end of the movie is that after Hoggle betrays her because he's a coward and he doesn't know what it means to have friends, she forgives him. It's not just a Christian metaphor in the sense that it relates to this Bible verse, but it's literally a story about salvation and about finding companionship and friendship and forgiving friends when they do you wrong. And when Jareth does try to seduce her, her response is, you have no power over me. I ask for so little. Just let me rule you. And you can have everything that you want. Kingdom is great. Just fear me, love me, do as I say, and I will be your slave. My kingdom is great. My kingdom is great. You have no power over me. It's in that moment that, like, she's forgiven the people who've sinned her. She's learned to treat Ludo, who she thought was a monster, like another being who deserves love. And it culminates in her having power over that kind of source of temptation and darkness. And none of this remotely occurred to me at the time, but, like, that Bible verse was one of the ones that was part of the hymn that we would sing very often. So this time around, that hymn just, like, came roaring back to me, and I was like, holy shit, this is very directly hitting on... Bible verses. And it's interesting because it's not an evangelical movie at all, in the sense that basically any movie that would reference the Bible in any way now would be an exercise in hitting you over the head trying to convert you. But it's also a movie about kind of finding your path. I think there's no way that that couldn't have been intentional to some way, like, draw a parallel to that. Chrissy, is this correct? I have no idea, but it's I'm loving it. Like, it actually... <laughs> I've never heard anything ever refer to the biblical aspects of Labyrinth, but you're saying it, and I'm like, this makes total sense. <laughs> well, even um, like um, her, like you just made me think of the scene where she's in the junkyard and the woman just keeps piling everything on her. And I she's like her like, too. This is all junk, and I was yeah. like, it's true, like materialism. Yeah, that was another scene that really hit out at me. Not just because I have a lot of hoarders in the family, and it was very <laughs> triggering. Yeah. Because she has a chance in this junkyard sequence to live in this fake version of her childhood room that would provide this kind of fake sense of comfort and home. Yeah, that's, I, I think that actually makes perfect sense for it. There are a lot of messages, I think, that uh, you can gather from this film that as an adult you see, but as a kid you're just... that's And that's a true fairy tale. Those cautionary tales, you don't even realize that it's teaching you something, but then you walk away and you learn about self-respect, you know, not judging people by how they appear you know, forgiveness, all those things that you're touching on. I actually think this movie did a really good job of communicating all of that to me as a teenager, as a child, and now into adulthood. I Now it seems so obvious, but I think that's actually a very good point. Wasn't obvious to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense because Jim Henson was a Sunday school teacher for a while. Oh, I didn't even know he that. He was a Christian scientist. Yeah, and he was a Christian scientist. So I think that it makes sense that that would have seeped into like the way he tells stories. He was probably you know teaching a lot of Bible stories. And also in Dark Crystal, we were talking about the Skeksis were kind of based on the seven deadly sins. I think those kind of parables are very much something that he was interested in exploring and 
you could probably like break up so many sections of this movie into individual little fairy tales Mm -hmm. that would each have their own moral. Like the story is very episodic and it would almost work better as a book where each, you know, chapter is a more concrete like lesson, you know, in a way. That's true. Cause like to bring back up the fire gang, like technically it didn't look great, but I actually thought those guys were kind of a representation of, of like going out and clubbing <laughs> and like losing your head like yeah like you're in a dangerous situation <laughs> here don't trust these guys song about getting turned yeah it is and they're like come on party with us and Chilly she's like down uh, with the fire game yeah like there's a lot of weird that, that's what i mean like and yeah. i don't know what the bog of eternal stench is about other than just being the comedic relief for every boy who was i think it's heroin well no it's just the, the no, I, and think, were, I think again, it's just farts those animated those buttholes all over the place that how did that pass i don't know like I, I remember when i showed this movie to my nephews it I was passed like, silently but deadly <laughs> well that was i knew there was only going to be one scene in that whole movie that my nephews would like when i showed it to them and that was an interesting thing. I'm like, I wish there was a girl in my family that I could show this movie to for the first time, and there isn't. So I'm just going to show it to my nephews, and they're going to hate it. And they did, except for the bog of turtle stench. That was like the one toggle po- yeah. pissing in the beginning. Yeah, I never thought I'd see a Muppet pee. Into <laughs> I'm glad that I'm not the only one. That was the first note I wrote about this yeah. movie. That was the first thing I wrote was, I didn't expect to see and a peeing was... Muppet. And there was also a statue of it of the, that was of a fountain, dicks. a yeah. water feature yeah, with goblin dicks. dicks. The go- goblin dick thing. I missed for... the goblin dicks. Yeah, there's goblin dicks. I was and too focused mean... on David Bowie's <laughs> The goblin dicks you needed were with you the whole time. Yeah. There's very overt uh, phallic things happening oh, yeah. throughout the whole movie. Very right? overt and unvert. Unvert, apparently. <laughs> Nobody, I always noticed. I actually, as a kid, thought the goblin dicks were funny. Like, I remember being like, hee-hee, like, hmm. that's clearly a dick. And just, they were, like, even slowly dripping. I guess I needed pants that specifically pointed to yeah. them to oh there, You know, right, side note, random little factoid, 90s internet had a website called davidbowiesarea.com. Area. And it was, like, a whole website solely dedicated to his crotch in that movie and i visited it frequently. oh i'm positive there must be a site like that today <laughs> i wonder if it's like, it was like were a you a subscribing member <laughs> it i bet like it's a... like an app now <laughs> it might be i need to david get, bowie's oh crotch God. always on my iphone whenever i need it <laughs> upgrade david bowie's crotch <laughs> i want to talk about the most disturbing thing in the movie for me it's not really related to story is it's it david bowie's crotch outside of david bowie's crotch um What's the little baby's name in the movie? Toby. 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 That is a real little baby. Mm-hmm. He's really crying in that environment and has no idea that this is a movie and these are just puppets. Like that little boy, yeah. that little baby is really horrified. Um, that baby knows what it did. <laughs> that baby actually grew up to become a puppeteer, though, so yes. he's not that upset. That's it's the creator's so, son. He peed the, on Bowie, yeah. What's his name, Brian Froud? It's Brian Froud and Wendy Froud's son, Toby Froud, who they cast as oh, Toby. Uh, as Toby. Um, he would only respond to his own name. That's why they actually they originally... Dumb kids, fucking yeah, baby. Yeah, the kids are supposed to be uh, <laughs> called Freddy, but Toby refused to... But it's hilarious to me that they're, they just put this baby, and I, there's this big scene where they're singing and dancing yeah, all dance around magic, her, man. and the baby's just crying, and the baby thinks that these troll creatures are like... Oh, see, really I thought like, the baby was very proud of its performance. I think so. <laughs> yeah, I, I originally kind of thought that too, and then I looked it up and found out that it was Brian Froud's son, and he actually met his wife on the Dark Christmas because mm-hmm. she was a puppeteer on that movie yeah. and then they got together and had a baby that they put in this movie so it's like at least did he put his shard in her? I <laughs> yeah. probably at some point to make that's how babies are that's made that's how Toby was born 
I, you know, it's funny because they interviewed Toby about that, and he was like, yeah, I don't think I made a great impression on Mr. Bowie because I peed on him, and I cried a lot, and I was very upset the whole time. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, well. And actually, Brian said he was really uneasy about his son being so close to his crotch. Like, every time he was like, oh, those perf pants were made so uncomfortable for me to watch my son sitting in this, yeah. like, grown man's When you bounce on my crotch, it means I'm your father now. <laughs> but... <laughs> I mean, well, that was the thing, too. Then they were like, okay, we need Wendy off set, like, you know, and that's why you kind of see Toby looking, mm-hmm. like, not mm. not in a way that's natural, and it's because they, they had to distract him the whole time, so, yeah. Oh, my <laughs> God. Again, I just want to shout out, like, the, the some of the visually stunning things in that movie. Like, that, I do think that ballroom dance sequence is it's absolutely perfect. stunning. Yeah. And, I mean, there are elements of the visuals that make it kind of inherently dated. Like, especially, I would say, the hair. Yeah. Um, and some of the I kind don't know of, what you're talking oh about. Oh, my God. Her mom or her stepmom's outfit is the most 80s, tr- like, yeah. Oh, yeah. fashion yeah. No, Despite I've ever the seen. amount of hairspray, the hair does not actually hold up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's still tremendous. Yeah. Um, and then I also want to shout out there's a moment in one of the scenes where Hoggle's running after Sarah to help her um, and, da- and Jareth appears out of nowhere but before Jareth appears um, you see his face in uh, as like a as an, an impression like a very uh, dim like drawing on these rocks and then the camera kind of pans um, side to side mm-hmm. and you see that it's actually spread across three rock faces so like this kind of drawing of him like spreads out and it's just a visually totally stunning moment that didn't advance the story in just the sense that Jareth is such a trickster god that he would kind of appear almost anywhere in this kingdom mm-hmm. um, but it was also just like such a flourish that I was really impressed by. In that scene the clouds are also forming the shape of his codpiece. <laughs> That's um, true. I was That's about, true. I, I'm glad you noticed it because cod- Apparently, that making that those rocks was really difficult. And oh, I could imagine. So. Um, they actually it was a painstaking moment for the set designers, and they actually were like, "Oh God, is this even going to be worth it?" So, just you saying that, I hope they're listening and can hear that it paid off. <laughs> I feel like I have a controversial opinion. In that, no, no. I do not think these are top shelf David Bowie songs. <laughs> like, oh, that these is are, not a controversial. These opinion. are I agree. pretty yeah. terrible. That is easily oh. easily validated by just listening to any other music. Yeah, well, okay, I thought that you liked you those know, songs. No, I like them. I think they're still better than like most things. <laughs> but <laughs> oh, these are bananas. In, in comparison to other David Bowie songs, yeah, no, they're like eighties well, Bowie is a hard thing to really get into. I mean, I like Let's Dance, and I like some Bowie songs. I mean, I'm not a super fan of David Bowie. I love the song Let's Dance, and there are like three or four other songs on it that I love, but then I cherry-pick the rest. Exactly. Um, (laughs) And that's that's actually true of a lot of Bowie albums, but especially that period. Yes. Um, Wild Labyrinth was probably, probably was the first place where I heard David Bowie songs knowing they were by David Bowie. I definitely did not love those, and I do not remotely view them as really good David Bowie songs. I agree. Yeah. Okay. Like, well, not that yeah. controversial. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. no, no. Like, I don't, like labyrinth. Yeah. Like, like even aside from the production, the the lyrics just aren't 
up to snuff. The lyrics are bananas. Like, the lyrics especially are like cuckoo the bananas. Jump Magic Jump. Is that what the song is Jump called? Magic Jump. Magic Dance. I mean, okay. The, the <laughs> song is called Magic Dance. There's a slap that baby, make him free. Like, that's so weird. What does that mean? And he did Chris, those, Did you know he did those Google Gaga noises? I'll teach you what that means. No, thank you. <laughs> okay, good. We can all agree that's crap. <laughs> I, I, I am not saying that. So Team I like that on the record. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, I'm it's okay fun, but it's, it's definitely, like, yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Do you still want to look for him? Is that the castle beyond the Goblin City? Turn back, Sarah. Turn back before it's too late. I can't. Don't you understand that I can't? What a pity. It doesn't look that far. It's further than you think. Time is short. I want to talk more about <laughs> how gay he is in this movie. <laughs> and just the fact that that was a choice. Yeah. I mean, I know that that kind of capitalizes on his androgyny in general. But they wanted that But they androgyny. really pushed it in this movie. Yeah. Like that hair, the tight pants, the I'm eyebrows. I'm still not seeing it. I'm not seeing it at all The here. lip gloss. I mean, his name is Jareth. I thought it was pretty butch mask myself. <laughs> <laughs> He's and basically Gaston. I mean... <laughs> It's confusing to me. Like, is it titillating? Yeah, I can't even speak now. And it's a movie that is family <laughs> friendly, supposedly. <laughs> like, yeah. it's just the crotch and the makeup, and yeah, it's just like, how could they do that back then? But it happened. Yeah. I mean, because on the one hand, it's capitalizing on like teen girls crushes on rock stars. And yeah, specifically and eighties rock Bowie. stars in particular yeah. was a big time for foppish, like yeah. this, that combination of macho and incredibly effeminate. Even if you put aside Bowie as just his own figure, yeah, like that was just also the mainstream style by that time. But I guess it was. Like it's hard for me to like look at David Bowie in this movie and be like, women would find that sexy just because it's so. You don't understand how women find gay men sexy. Like, have you heard of Liberace? <laughs> right. Yeah. I know Becky, but. <laughs> <laughs> Previously on When We Were Young. Uh, no, because the movie is about a threatening sexuality for this young girl. And I guess, like, the more obvious the, direction to take it would be, like, some creepy, like, I pervert don't, I don't think it is and, a threatening sexiness. I don't think it is a sexiness that threatens to consume her at any point. And I think that's, like, what sets up her, like, rejecting it. It's about, like, her resisting temptation and not succumbing yeah, to it. Yeah, isn't he supposed Actually, to be a tempt, like, a tempting thing? Yeah, but wouldn't it's he not, be... I feel like you're trying to make it, like, a rape culture exactly. thing and I don't think it is I think that's an, um, like a modern frame you're trying to apply to it yeah I actually think it, it's easier it's also a little more covert like it, because he's not this aggressively macho guy like we know to look out for aggressively macho guys mm -hmm. it's the slippery ones or like those those coy you know charming, you know, like alluring, fashionable men that you really got to look out for too. Like he's non, he is non-threatening in a lot right. of, in a lot of ways, but that can become the biggest threat because you feel this false sense of security or you think he can't overcome me or he can't like, he can't get in or, but then you find yourself drawn to him. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of that going on. Yeah. He's a bad boy. He's no good for you. Yeah. And it's more interesting than if he was ugly or like had prosthetics on and made him like a creature. He could have been like a stunningly handsome man or yeah. something like really big and burly. But I think that would have been more threatening to a 14 year old girl. Mm -hmm. But I think that makes it more disturbing. 
because it's more, like you said, covert. It's yeah, like, slippery. Like, if it was just, like, a guy that we could say, like, mm-hmm. oh, that's a creepy or a dangerous guy. Like, it's very much like a Big Bad Wolf kind of exactly. uh, story. But, like, in this case... The Big Bad Wolf is a fey rock star, so it's, yeah. <laughs> it's just a really interesting choice that I think would only have happened in 1986. And I actually do think it contributes, too, to the question of sexuality, too. Like, I actually found myself sexually confused by it as well. Like, I was like, am I into women? Like, am I... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like, it actually did make me question my own sexuality, and that you know, like led out to other places where I w- don't think I would have normally gone before, like... When I saw Batman Returns, I had I was really conflicted because I thought like Selena Kyle in that movie was so hot, and I well, say, or was. just or yeah. Jessica Rabbit or yeah. you know there were like a bunch of things in my childhood that you know talk about that and like what like and your approach as a kid and what you perceive as sexual or like am I sexually attracted to it or do I want to embody that and you know just mm-hmm. trying to figure that out I think Labyrinth um, definitely was a huge part of that. Uh, dialogue for me like i really think that helps sexual labyrinth yes (laughs) so what do you guys think of jennifer connelly's performance in this movie do you like her it's serviceable (laughs) yeah she's 14 in an 80s movie (laughs) yeah i don't think that's an excuse i think she's a good actress now yeah she's not like my favorite actress she's not like incredible i think she won an oscar Mm -hmm. right for a beautiful mind Yeah. yeah um but like whatever she's 14 she looks nice I didn't like the direction for her, though. I thought she was a little brat. Yeah. So, I mean, I was... She definitely, like, is very bratty. She's always, like, screaming, like, it's not fair. And I think that's partially her character, but it's It's also, like, you don't need to hit that note with every single line. But also, I mean, she's tasked with, like, basically talking to herself this entire movie, not just the fact that she's talking to puppets who... I mean, I guess they're performing on set with her, but... You know, like, the voices aren't necessarily coming from the puppet's mouth. So that's hard. But also, like, a lot of the lines are just like, now what do I do? And, like, (laughs) oh, I know what I'll do. I'm going to lie to the door. And, you know, she's constantly, like, doing expositional dialogue. Yeah, a lot of the dialogue in both of these movies is just pure exposition. Oh, my God. And I I think, I definitely think one way in which Pixar's storytelling game has upped the ante so far is just in terms of only having dialogue where it advances the story or reveals character. I I did not mention, but in Dark Crystal, I counted how long the exposition lasted in the very beginning it was seven minutes of exposition oh yeah no it's like pure... <laughs> a voiceover saying then this happened this, and this is, is the world. carefully <laughs> explaining the world yeah seven there minutes Skeksis is a little long. and they were not greek yeah i do think that similarly to the dark crystal like where this movie does fall down for me is in the story george lucas jim henson and david bowie are some of like the three like biggest creative forces of the 70s and 80s but where i feel like these movies don't hold up is in the actual like storytelling in a broader sense it's like they're so Mm -hmm. imaginative and there's so many ideas in here and all of those ideas are really really clever but the way that they hang together Mm -hmm. doesn't totally hang together like the goblin king comes to her and is like i'm gonna take your baby but you have 13 hours to get him back but not if you can go through this labyrinth and it's like why doesn't he just take the baby and what does the goblin king do what's his deal he dance magic he dances want? and what plays with his balls like what is he interested in what's his goal like and these are like these are also just basic 
storytelling yeah. questions. Yeah. But I feel like um, the all, all the folks who made this, at least at the time, were so tied into the idea that they were making a fairy tale that yeah. they got caught in just kind of finding their own way to channel those old tropes of the fairy tale storytelling structure. And I think that definitely results in the kind of like video game like feeling and also results in just not connecting as much emotionally to these stories as you should. Like, I don't really feel any danger in the fact that this girl literally wishes her baby brother to be taken away by goblins. And there doesn't really (laughs) feel at any point like there's an actual tangible threat to any of them. I felt like, so I watched this movie, I watched it half way through and then I had to stop I think I had to go out and then when I started it again I was like not as into it and I was like I kind of get she's gonna get her baby brother back like no one's gonna die like I kind of got it I was like I get it (laughs) I think (laughs) Jareth should have torn the baby in half (laughs) see I actually that's interesting that you're all talking about this because I always found George Lucas and Jim Henson and Brian Proud, these are visual artists. These are yeah. people who love to make things look amazing. None of them are very qualified writers, in my opinion. Like, mm-hmm. I love Jim Henson, and you're totally very true. funny and clever, but you need a good writer. Mm-hmm. And none of them really ever got that. Yeah, and the fact that this went through so many writers shows that, that that's, like, Jim Henson's vision for this and the other like people who are in it like have very clear visions, but there was no writer's vision that's actually going through and saying, like, we, we need, need to, to like, character. yeah, <laughs> yeah, connect this more to a real thing. And yeah. so I think that there's a lot of great ideas, and like a lot of it comes through just in like David Bowie being like vaguely creepy, and that poses a threat to me. Where I'm like, like get your hands off that baby, yeah. <laughs> Mister. But other than that, like, yeah, in the terms of the actual story, is it feels very thin and and like you said, like a fairy tale or even like a Bible story where it's like, if you really stop and think about it and ask some like why about a few things, yeah. it doesn't really hold up. Well, and it was also like, it, I don't know, it just felt kind of disappointing in a certain sense because there are so many sketches for characters. And I mean, literal sketches, like in almost the comedy sense where there are characters there, like the, the rocks that are, just total emo depressos trying to bum out people um, that even just played with a bit more creatively, again, just by a writer who could see what was already in the landscape that could have, you know, again, just been made an opportunity to make the characters more grounded. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it would have been a much better movie and one that would hold up even better despite the things about it that are dated visually. Yeah. Yeah. The one you guys did kind of mention this scene before, but the scene where the, woman in the trash does she have a name that <laughs> you know i don't know if she does okay i don't i always just called her the trash lady so. it's like constantly giving her i mean i really connected to that scene yeah. because i have always held on to pretty much everything i mean i even some of my toys from childhood i still have and i can't get rid of them and i don't really mind if they disappear you know when i'm not at home but like i can't physically be like all right let's get rid of this stuffed animal because i do attach so much emotion to these objects and I think that scene was the one that really did capture the emotion for me in this movie of just you know like being distracted by all these childhood things and I feel like this movie is kind of about like the transition of a fantasy world that's based on play and make-believe to the fantasy world that's like ooh, sexy rock star let me 
My beautiful dark twisted my fantasy. Bodice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I will say, like, another thing I always thought about the way the movie ended that was very satisfying for me as a kid who loves fantasy and still does to this day and playing dress up, do it way too much. Mm-hmm. But uh, I liked that at the end of the movie, she realizes she can still have fun and yeah. they're like should you need us we're here and she's like okay and it they have a big party at the end mm-hmm. and I, I actually thought like oh okay just because she's more grown up now doesn't mean she can't have fun or have a childlike sense of wonder and that you don't have to abandon everything you love because you're an adult mm-hmm. and i actually thought that was another really important life lesson for me because you know so many people like are like oh no i'm gonna be a grown-up now and i can't like i can't play dress up or like that's not something i'm gonna do anymore and this movie was like no you could still do all those things just you know make sure you you know protect yourself and from goblin <laughs> yeah protect yourself from seductive goblin kings speaking what? of having fun I have a playtime. Oh. Yay! Oh. It's been so long. Playtime! It's just a trivia question. Okay. Um, we have all these inflatable balls. <laughs> We're turning uh, the studio into a ball pit now. So, Labyrinth and the Dark Crystal appears number 13 and number 4, respectively, on Box Office Mojo's puppetry movies of all time. <laughs> what is the highest movie on that list that isn't related to Jim Henson or the Muppets? You want to take a guess? You know it. Team America, World Police. What do you think? Yeah, sure. Eh? Yeah. No. <laughs> I can't think of anything. That is correct. Yeah. Fuck yeah. It's number six. First time I won <laughs> Number one time. is 2011's The Muppets. Yeah, I figured that huh. would be the... Oh, wow. That's surprising. That is yeah. surprising. Not a lot on that list that's not The Muppets. Yeah. yeah <laughs> it's Muppets like being John Malkovich and <laughs> Team America. That does not even count. <laughs> it's a puppetry genre. No, but it's yeah, not like yeah. puppetry. It's not like creating a world of puppetry. What, is Pinocchio on there? Please the animated on. Pinocchio? <laughs> Please wax poetic on puppetry. So, yeah, I think that uh, it seems like all of us liked something about Labyrinth. Um, I definitely got more out of it than I thought I would. I honestly thought I was, it was going to, I, I thought I would hate it. I'm so um, pleased. And, <laughs> and I, I enjoyed a lot of it and I had fun watching it. I think The Dark Crystal is more of a slog to get through just because I like levity and humor. But um, but I enjoyed it. Not having had these movies as like anchors in my childhood film knowledge, it's interesting to like rewatch them now. Because at the time when I was growing up, I definitely had that kind of religious experience, but for whatever reason, didn't connect to those aspects of it. But I was always really into fantasy and and movies like that. And like everyone else here, I really did love certain aspects of it, especially as far as the technical craft and the world building. And again, like Don Bluth, I feel like Jim Henson was a big, big bridge, both in terms of my taste in movies and taste in genre, and also a bridge in filmmaking and in the film industry toward a kind of storytelling that really explored dark themes, but was still accessible to kids. I really connect to the themes of this movie more than I feel like I connect to the scenes of the movie where I don't really have a lot of feeling for Jennifer Connelly in this movie herself. And it's more like when the scenes that she's in remind me of like myself, like that scene with the trash woman that hit me emotionally, but not really because of anything with her character. It was more just how it made me feel. So I think in that way, like these movies really hold up. I wish we could get into these characters a little bit more and that they were a little bit less episodic. But as someone who grew up also like kind of listening to Disney music and playing with toys probably longer than a lot of like my peers were, I I do definitely admire this movie and how it explores being torn between childhood and adulthood. I think that's 
a really interesting theme to explore that I I don't know that any other movie has really done it in this in quite this way at least not that I can think of right now and I mean Jim Henson there's no one else like him I mean yeah that's yeah. why there's no other puppetry movies really is like no one has the imagination or the ability to create these things um in quite this way so I, I think it's great that he has these movies out there um we didn't really talk about the response to Labyrinth, but Labyrinth really broke his heart when it was mm-hmm. a um, yeah. failure. And I think, wow. I yeah. mean, I don't want to conjecture, but like, I, I feel like it has something to do with maybe why he wasn't creating as much, you know. He never after, directed a movie again. No. Yeah, and he did continue to work on some Muppet stuff, but I think maybe that led to his death in a way, too. He kind of famously didn't seek medical attention early enough when he was starting to feel sick. And I think had he done that earlier, he would have at least had a better a better shot. So, and I and I do kind of wonder if there's something that's kind of related there where if he just like it felt like his creative spirit was kind of crushed by the um, response to this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't want to lay all of that on him because I, I, I don't know that for sure. But I know that, like, The Dark Crystal was the movie that he was the most proud of. And then I think this was probably his biggest disappointment. But I like that we have these movies that really, I think, very purely capture his, like, who he was in his imagination. Yeah. Um, at the first fairy con, when I met Brian Brown for the first time, he actually talked about Jim Henson and he actually said that it I like the way he put it he said it warms my heart that we're here watching these movies in you know it was a two night fairy ball the first night was a good fairy ball the second night was a bad fairy ball and uh, he said it actually warmed his heart that everybody was there to celebrate Jim's work and he said I feel so blessed to have known him and I know that he is here with us tonight and that he's so relieved that these movies were well received. He's like, I do know that uh, he was aware of the uh, response that was getting in VHS and how people were picking it up as yeah. like a cult. Like he did know that, and it actually made him feel a little better. Good. Good. But uh, he did say, like it, it is a huge deal for me to be here right now and honoring Jim's memory and that we're doing this. And that actually made me feel so vindicated, dressed up as like a good fairy. Mm-hmm. Oh, not a bad fairy. I, no, it was a good fairy ball when we had that conversation. The next night, the bad fairy ball, <laughs> I was bad. You threw a shot glass at him. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck like, you, that, I'm the bad fairy. <laughs> I'm gonna get you're on the fairy when I leave. You're just and drunk. Yeah, you're like up. exactly the same. You're just yeah. like, fuck you. Yeah, you just become a drunk townie. <laughs> yeah, go it fuck was Philadelphia. <laughs> to be honest, oh, I was in Philly. <laughs> Get some water and go fuck yourself. So, some things to look forward to. Netflix is going to have the Dark Crystal series. Um, I believe it airs next year. Um, And they are developing a sequel to Labyrinth right now for cinematic, you know, films. Um, Obviously. A movie. (laughs) Oh, yeah, a movie. Um, Obviously, David Bowie can sadly not play Jareth and I don't know why they're going to make this no, movie because shouldn't. it can't have a Jareth character in it because who would even play Jareth? Well, that's what I wanted to ask Depp. you guys. Like, literally, who... Like, what musician would you want to cast? Actually, Steve, Steve Carell is going to play his brother, Kareth. <laughs> God. I, I don't, don't think they're having a Jareth character. They but, better not. Like, how could you? How could you? Like, the well, most obvious you? answer is late, like Lady Gaga. But, oh, like, that'd be amazing. That'd actually be kind of cool. But, I'd like, they would that. have... But, <laughs> who would like even be well, that Well, she character. spent the first half of her career aping David Bowie. Why yeah, not she totally this did. part, too? Her and Madonna can, well, like, I remember that they were talking to Johnny Depp about it, and I immediately... That would be 
yes. a disaster. Uh, yeah, and no. what's funny is too, we asked Cheryl Henson if they were doing a Labyrinth sequel, and she was like, absolutely not. Like, that it's a standalone, it's never having a sequel, stop asking me. Like, she I was mean, really I mean, I hope furious. this doesn't get off the ground, because... It, yeah, they had some prequels, like in graphic novel form that you can read, and those are kind of interesting. They have some children's books that expand on the universe more, and there's a lot of great concept art. But I, I, I was like, if they were going to ask the fans what they would want to see, I thought it'd be interesting if Jennifer Connelly ended up assuming the role of Goblin Queen and defeating Jareth, and then it's her turn to like Maybe. pass the crown yeah. to someone else and kind of make it a, like a... There's there's a there's potential there or something, but I, like, I don't, don't think so. I not, think it should. I'm if she was yeah. a bigger star, then that may be a bigger possibility. Yeah. What about Yasmin Bleeth? Well, I'm just saying, like, don't make she's it about free. Jared. At least Edie's not doing anything. All I'm saying is I don't want a Jared impersonator. Like I no, don't want anybody. No trying to like take on that role like I think that would be incredibly maybe offensive maybe somebody like Hugh Jackman who can sing so if there's songs and he's like a His big brother. star he's Jareth's brother I don't, know. I don't know it's, all, it's, it's a bad idea it is that's what I mean like there's yeah. no good way around it and I just don't see what the point yeah. is like the Dark Crystal sure you should do a prequel where it's like the you know the crystal gets destroyed and you know those puppets are puppets so they can't die I think if it's different know. enough if, if it's more like a panned labyrinth kind of tone because the director is yeah. the guy who did don't breathe. Okay. Um, a horror movie. So, um, his name is Fede Alvarez. Um, he's from South America somewhere. I forget. But um, like if it's dark and weird, I feel like there's a lot you can mine out of this mm-hmm. universe. They just should not try and like make it similar to the original. Like yeah, that's they should it, yeah. not try and have a Jareth or a Jareth like character. It probably should not be a musical because that. Yeah very difficult to do. Yeah. Um, I just yeah. don't see the point in returning to that universe without Bowie. Well, that was Labyrinth yeah. and the Dark Crystal. Um, I'm so happy that Chrissy was here to talk to us about that. Yay. I hope you had fun. I did. <laughs> and we didn't crush your dreams. Completely. No. I'm so relieved. <laughs> you were I saying like, you are like, oh God, oh I don't God, know if I'm going to... I hate gonna... it. I'm going to cry. <laughs> I still hate Roger Rabbit, but yeah, that's I fine. admire Labyrinth. Yeah. Oh, hey, Chrissy, uh, you hungry? You want a bite of this peach? <laughs> oh, do I? <laughs> How about a bite of this cod piece? Yeah. <laughs> also okay. And that's all the cod pieces and eternal stench we have time for on the When We Were Young podcast. Next episode, we will be doing a three movies from a rubber-faced comedian who rose to popularity in the 90s. They were all released in 1994. He had a very big year. Are you going to tell us who it was? Nope. <laughs> Tune in next time. Was be... it Brendan Fraser? <laughs> no. We're going to be doing 1994 Jim Carrey with Dumb and Dumber, The Mask, and, and Ace, Ace Ventura, Ventura Pet Detective. So... Somebody please stop us. <laughs> I can't wait to listen to this. I'm so looking forward to I it. I have not seen any of those movies really? in... Oh, a million years. Since the 90s. So. Surely they will hold up. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio, studio in Los Angeles, California. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to us on iTunes. You can follow our adventures on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash young. You can also tweet us at www.yshow. You can check us out, or you can email us at gmail at www.yshow at gmail.com if you have episode suggestions. And if you want to help us defray the cost of producing a show that we give to you entirely for free, you can contribute to us at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash when we were young. I'm Becky. I'm Chris. I'm Seth. I'm Chrissy. She's here to stay. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> if only.
Slap that baby. Make it free. Make it free. You remind it... me of the babe. What babe? The babe with the power. What power? Mm. <laughs> As the said, love, deep in your eyes, it kind of held you. Open and closed within your eyes. the sky within your Such a new dreams, a love that will last.